The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week, and it is a pleasure to be joined by my co-host this week, Katie Zaccardi. Hi, Katie. How's it going? Hi, Ryan. It's going good. How about you? It is so good. One of my favorite people in the music industry, and I'm so <laughs> glad to be having you on this ride for the next hour I gotta tell I gotta tell the listeners and the viewers what I like most about you, Katie. Uh, my favorite kind of people in the music biz are the ones where if they gave you a business card, it would wrap around like all the way around and back again because of all the things that you do and you do well. You host multiple music industry podcasts. You're a music career coach, a yoga instructor, and a hypnotherapist. Do too, I believe. Do I I'm, ge- right? I'm getting trained. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. I mean, I'm getting trained to be certi- certified. So as soon as I am, I'll let you know we can do some hypnotherapy on the podcast. <laughs> oh my God, can we do that? At- does it does it work? I mean, you'd be the person to ask. Does that work over live stream? Could you hypnotize me through the stream over Streamyard? Because oh my God, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm getting my certification virtually, and um, a lot of people who take it like they do online, fully online coaching. So yeah, I think we can make it work. I got when I got the thing, I got this little like pendulum, and you use it. Well, wait, hey, it. Hey, hey, I don't know. I'm not using that. it. <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna take over your brain. We got for a whole podcast, show Ryan. to do here. You can't, you're clucking like a chicken for the next 55 minutes. We can't have that. Okay, it was now. my plan all along. Yes, you, you need to let me know when that training is complete because we need to have some serious fun with that. Not that we're I not will. gonna have some serious fun today. Our guest coming up in the next segment, Michael Elsner of Master Music Licensing. As somebody who coaches musicians, Katie, is there any? Is there any part of a a musician's career that they talk to you more often about and want to learn more about than music than sync licensing? That's like the hot topic for musicians, right? Yeah, and I feel like even if it's not what people are focusing on in their, you know, at any given time in their career, it always feels like, oh, but I want to get my song synced. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like I should be doing this because it's such a cool accomplishment and it's such a cool way not only to make money right now, especially when they're it feels like income streams are kind of dwindling, um, but also just a really amazing thing to have under your belt of like, you know, this artist recorded my song or I'm in this commercial or this movie or something like that. And seeing like artists that I love, like Ingrid Michaelson basically blow up because of TV shows like Grey's Anatomy. She owes I've always, yeah, sure. I thought I was going to go into sync for a while too, actually. Like I was working in music publishing and I thought that sync licensing was just the coolest thing. Um, so I'm excited for this for sure. It, it's, it's such an exciting prospect for musicians, right? One for the reason you mentioned the idea of being able to say, yeah, I was in an episode of Grey's Anatomy. Oh, my song was in the yeah. walking dead. <laughs> I mean, that, that's like the ultimate, uh, conversation piece at any cocktail party. You're going to win the conversation there. Cause how cool is that? And also yeah. sync licensing represents something that I think is really empowering for creators, which is the possibility of mailbox money, Right. 
not have, yeah. you know, not your labor, not necessarily earning the dollar, but something you created earning money while you sleep and actually making money off of your IP is it, it's, it's sort of the next level for what a lot of indie creators aspire to do. So mastering yeah. sync licensing, learning how to move those projects and maybe get some sync opportunities for yourself is huge. And so we're, I'm excited uh, for us to be able to talk to Michael Elsner all about that in the next segment. And for the folks who are watching over the live stream right now, if you have any sync licensing questions that you want us to toss to Michael Elsner in the next, uh, after the break, let us know. We want to make this collaborative for you. We know how hard it is to get one of these experts to talk to you. And, and so, you know, have at it. If you have any questions you want us to throw at him in the comments, let us know. But before we get to that, I, I have a lot of great stories to talk with you about, Katie, that I think I would really appreciate your perspective on, particularly as a podcaster. But first, I have a little bit of, uh, of, of horn tooting on my end. I was pretty excited to find out this week that the article that I wrote earlier this year about uh, the sound that Pitbull makes when he does every song, the ew sound that he does that everybody knows, that, we, that I worked with a group of attorneys on to get as a registered trademark— and we decided it was so cool. We wrote an article about it. That article is going to be published in this year's Entertainment Publishing and the Arts Handbook for 2021. It's a special publication where they take like the 12 best entertainment articles of the year and you know create a special handbook that gets sent out to all the lawyers. And I dig it because when I was in law school, I never thought that like the law professors were always on such a higher level of brilliance than I was. I was just trying to get through to get my law degree. <laughs> and so the fact yeah. that I get to be in this handbook with all these respected law professors, I mean, it's it, the imposter syndrome is through the roof. But I feel like it's sort of when you the only reason you're getting into the club is because you're with a celebrity like I co-wrote this article with Pitbull. I can't help but think that that helped us get into the handbook. <laughs> I'm with you him. know what? You did it. You it's did it, Ryan. That's right. Round of applause. Yeah. Pitbull Round didn't get applause. me into the handbook. I got him into the handbook. How exactly. about that? Well, you know what? Without him, without you, he would have nothing to even write about mm -hmm. because this wouldn't have been achieved. There you go. This, that's it. That's it. Oh. See, this is why you are such an acclaimed <laughs> music business coach. Because you, you, I'm stating the obvious. You got me hyped up. <laughs> I dig it. All right. Yes, yes. Let's talk about podcasting because this this saga that's been going on with Apple and Spotify, this podcasting rivalry, rivalry they have is so juicy. And it's sort of emblematic of one of the things that I love the most about the music business, which is this. Whenever two music business tech organizations are direct competitors, they always try to one-up each other on a weekly basis. If CD Baby launches a new feature, you know it's only a matter of time before TuneCore announces that they're launching the same feature with 10% more stuff in it. And then CD Baby has to one-up them. And it's it's just how it is with this business because they're always trying to control the next PR press release. And in podcasting, it's no, uh, it's no uh, exception with these tech platforms. So last week, uh, if you were listening to the fo program, folks, you know that uh, Apple announced that it was going to roll out a new subscription feature for all of its podcasters. Anybody who distributes a podcast on Apple Podcasts, which is pretty much probably 90% of the podcasts that are out there, everybody puts their podcast yeah. on Apple because it's the largest platform. They announced that any podcaster would be able to offer a premium subscription-based feature. So you could still have the same podcast that you always have, 
But now you can allow your listeners for a $3.99 fee, $5.99 fee for those listeners to get special premium content that you'd make available to them, whether it's getting the episode a few days earlier, whether it's special episodes that only those people get to listen to or something like that. Uh, Premium content is an exciting prospect for podcasters because it creates a new revenue stream, a more direct revenue stream for the podcasters above and beyond just selling ads in your podcast. And so as a podcaster, Katie, I know that's always an exciting prospect for you, but not to be undone. Spotify could not let that announcement sit. And so just (laughs) yesterday, in response to Apple's premium podcast announcement, Spotify has announced that they are going to roll out their own subscription premium feature for its podcasters. And because they had to one-up them, they're trying to give people an even better deal than the Apple deal. So with Apple's subscription platform... Apple's going to take 15 to 30% of the revenue that the podcaster generates from all of this premium sales. Spotify has announced that their premium feature is not going to take any fees from the podcaster for the first two years, not until 2023. And after that, Spotify's cut is only going to be 5%. So Spotify is offering a better, I see your eyes getting big like uh, dinner plates there. That's exciting. Because I'm like, where's this energy, Spotify? We've never seen it before. I know. <laughs> you, you think they could put some of this energy into you know, paying artists a little bit more on the music platform, but you know. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, I mean, for, if they're only taking a 5% cut, they clearly have some money to give. But yeah, the only drawback with the Spotify approach seems to be that they are requiring participating podcasts to host their programs on the Anchor platform, which is the Spotify podcast hosting service that they own. You know, most people, you know, as opposed to say this podcast, which is hosted on SoundCloud or other podcasts, which are on Podbean or Libsyn or uh, Spreaker, any of the uh, platforms that are out there. So that's kind of a, that's kind of icky and going to be tough for people to work with. Inconvenient. Inconvenient. But what I've really kind of noticed about this, Katie, is what we're kind of, what we're starting to see in the premium podcasting space and and uh, definitely something for folks like you and me to think about as we consider maybe this is a possible option is there are multiple ways that a podcaster like you or I could offer premium content and they and they have different pros and cons right so in addition to uh, Spotify and Apple which have their pros and cons that we've talked about there's always the tried and true premium subscription content model offered by Patreon where you yeah. have people who are your patrons, they pay money a month, and you can uh, give them access to your episode an, a week early over email or give them special premium content. But what I was talking about last week with Zach Sloan when he was co-hosting, which I thought was a pretty interesting point that uh, he and I were kicking around, is there's a lot of if, – if you have friction in the podcasting space for your listeners, you're going to lose listeners, right? If, if, if a podcast is being sent to your email – if it's being sent to you via a message in a direct message in Patreon, as opposed to just being sent right to your phone on your Apple podcast or Spotify platform, you're probably not going to listen to it. Right. And so the Apple and Spotify, which, you know, allow you to get it directly on your phone does give you a big advantage in that premium space as for podcasters and listeners, but it does come with a higher pricing as uh, whether it's the 15 to 30% cut of Apple or the 5% cut of Spotify. Yeah. There is so much here that it's almost like hard for my brain to process because on the one hand, I'm like, I don't know if I would ever 
use this. Like, I don't know if as a listener of a podcast, like as a host, it's like intriguing. Oh, how can I make extra money? You know, uh, I, I don't, I don't think either of us really do ads. I don't know if you have in the past during your whole like scheme, but I've never done ads on my podcast. So it's like, okay, this could be cool, but you're also giving so much up in my opinion as the creator. Cause it's like, I have to prepare, you know, if something has to get swapped out, if I'm promising advanced content or that thing, there's, there is a lot that I'm thinking about as a creator. And as a listener, I'm also like, I don't know that I want to pay extra for something that's supposed to be free, but this is like a little scarcity mindset. I feel like is coming up that I'm like, <laughs> I should be paying people for their podcast because it is, it's a lot of effort and time. And I know it firsthand that goes into creating podcasts and it's so such good content. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, premium podcasting content is not for your general audiences, right? These are for your super duper fans. The, the top 1% who don't just enjoy your show, but, worship your show get so much value of it and maybe actually willing to pay hard dollars for premium for for some sort of premium offering that is even more catered to them like there are some podcasts that you know i just listen to kind of regularly and you know they would if they asked me for money i wouldn't wouldn't pay it but there are some podcasts Like uh, the Dan Lebitard show, for example, which was a, a sports radio podcast produced out of Miami and that I've been listening to since like early 2000s. I'm a loyal fan of theirs. If they if they if they shut down their podcast off of Apple tomorrow and said the only way you can listen to us going forward is paying, you know, ten dollars a month, I'd be grumpy about it. <laughs> But I do it. <laughs> but you do it. And yeah, those yeah. are the kind and of And ultimately, fans. that's what you want as a podcast host. Like, you want people who are diehards. But here's my almost question for you, because I feel like the one advantage that Patreon might have is that you also get the community or you have the potential, at least, for community there. Whereas if I'm a, like on Spotify and on iTunes, you wouldn't get that. But if you are a loyal listener of a podcast, you also probably like the community that it creates Mm. and like the other people who listen to it. And I feel like I'm coming from a very like millennial or zillennial perspective here where there's a lot of like, you know, girl boss podcasts, stuff like that. And the communities are really strong. So that that's something that the other platforms can offer and Patreon can, though I do agree that the convenience is um, something that like getting it delivered straight to you is really convenient. Um, but I'm also thinking through, like, I don't like listening on Spotify. If you do the subscription on Spotify or the, this, you know, premium thing, does that mean everyone has to listen on Spotify and they can't choose to like subscribe, but listen on other platforms? Cause that also feels like a barrier to entry that I don't know if I'd be willing to put up with. And the devil's going to be in the details in all of this, right? Because we, yeah, none of these have launched yet. And so these are just press releases. We'll start to see the first indications of this, I think, in May, which is when the Apple version of this is going to launch. And we'll see how people respond to it. We'll see what what people like, what people don't like. And and then yeah. Spotify will probably see what happens with Apple and change their <laughs> change their <laughs> things up accordingly. But it's yeah. interesting. And uh, and for a certain kind of model of podcast, it it's an exciting prospect now. Like for podcasts like mine, which are not really about making money directly, but this is just how I network. This is how I 
just give back to the community. You know, I'm not, I, you know, any method of monetization isn't on the top of my mind, but if I podcasted for a living, having yeah. extra monetization options would be super duper valuable. Now, speaking of yeah. stories that have just popped in, you know, just doing my show prep for me, just these amazing stories, just flying across like the day before we do this show. Uh, and an interesting news source for some entertainment industry news, Katie, Anthony Fauci has uh, dropped some uh, bombs <laughs> here for us that are pretty exciting for the entertainment industry. The CDC has just announced new masking guidelines for vaccinated individuals, which the first thought I had when I saw these guidelines was, well, for one thing, wow, I, you know, I don't have to wear my mask in as many places uh, now that I'm vaccinated, which is pretty exciting. But then my mind went right to the entertainment industry about the possibilities. Now, Lauren, could you do me a favor? Put up the the graphic that the CDC put up about outdoor usage if you're vaccinated, because I thought this was pretty neat here. So if you look at the column there on the right, Katie, and I'll narrate this as best I can for the folks who are listening to this on audio. But basically, the CDC has announced as of yesterday, as of Tuesday, that if you are vaccinated— you can base and you are outdoors. You can basically be mask free and be safe in nearly all situations. The only situation where the CDC still recommends that you wear a mask, even if you're vaccinated, is if you're in a really, really crowded outdoor space. But other than that, if you're vaccinated, you're mask free. You're you're back to kind of standard operating procedure. And the first thing that I thought when I when I looked at this, Katie, was outdoor concerts. We're back, baby. This is exciting. Yeah. I, I have a I have a, a number of clients who are either who either do outdoor concerts as musicians or set up outdoor concerts as a just a, a, as event promoters. And I and the first thing I did was send this picture to all of them and just just to see how excited they were get because yeah, this is this is a new game. I, I, one of my clients who's an event promoter said, "Absolutely, we're we're, we're running with this. This is really good news." And uh, I'm happy to see developments like this, uh, you know, because it, it shows that we're starting to bring live performances back. Not that I haven't enjoyed music live streaming. Uh, it's been really, really fun. But, you know, I know a lot of musicians and other performers who've really depended on some version of having, uh, you know, the live performances in this space. And this kind of news is really heartening. Yeah, this is exciting because if. I don't know. I'm ready to like go barefoot in the grass, dancing to music, like waving my hands in the air. <laughs> I feel like after <laughs> the last year, I am so ready for that. And it's, it's a little bit hard to visualize, like getting to the point where we're inside in a crowd and everything like that. But I feel like, and I'm in New York. So for you guys where it's been warmer for a while now, it's probably like even you're craving it even more, but it definitely feels like we got a lot of things on our side. We got summer weather, we got vaccines going. I think it's going to be so exciting to get, not just for the musicians who can make some money and, and have gigs and jobs, but also just for people to just get out there and like be able to listen to live music. It's so exciting. Absolutely. Well, since you brought it up, Katie, we actually do have the graphic for indoors as well that I think is worth uh, talking about Lauren, can you pull that one up for us? Uh, because obviously the the indoor requirements are still a little bit more restrictive, but are still they still look pretty positive for people who are vaccinated. So if you look there on the right column, basically what the CDC is telling us is that in mostly all indoor scenarios, if you are vaccinated and wearing a mask, you're pretty safe. 
and they include everything there from restaurants to bars, uh, concerts, uh, things like that. So in this situation, there are, those are a lot of contexts where you could see at least some version of live music, whether it's in a club or, uh, you know, in, in some kind of sports, you know, bar place, maybe not in a, you know, 30,000 seat arena, unless everybody's properly socially distanced, but there's a lot of opportunities there for vaccinated individuals. And to me, that's, that's an important first step because if we're here and it's April, 2021, and this is the state of affairs for indoors now, things could look really good six months from now. Maybe we are able to feel safe reopening live music venues by the end of this year. I'm no epidemiologist, so I, you know, I'm a juris doctor, but, <laughs> you know, so take, take those things with a grain of salt. But honestly, when I think of where we were six months ago, if you told me those graphics were going to be something we'd be talking about in six months, I would have said you were crazy. I mean, this is, yeah. this is such a welcome development for my music clients. Yeah, it's hard to, for so long, it was like, oh, we'll be back soon, we'll be back soon. And then I feel like everyone just gave up and it's like, we'll never be back. <laughs> but now we are actually able to start planning in a way that at least gives us some insight as to like what's happening next. I'm definitely like still wary. I've got, you know, I'm like kind of waiting to see what happens. But even if we can, you know, start to implement them and start to get this going, even if there's a setback to just start to move forward, I feel like is it, I keep saying it's so exciting because I don't even know what other words to use. It's just like, I can't fathom it. I, you know, we've all been inside for so long that it just, it's going to be great. But this is also, I'm up in here in New York. I know in like Nashville and other places, they're doing this already. Oh, they yeah. already started without permission. Oh yeah. I, I'm in Florida. The, the, apparently the pandemic was over like, you know, it eight months over. ago. <laughs> So I'm over here like, I've been in my house forever. Like, <laughs> it's, I feel like it's a different ballgame, but yeah. Absolutely. Well, the you know, one of the listeners just wrote in, thank you, Ryan, for getting vaccinated. Well, thank you, science, for giving me the opportunity to get vaccinated. I mean, I, I'm, it, it's a, you know, just completely drifting away from the entertainment business here. But just when I, when I think about what a, what a marvel of science. I mean, what, what human beings are capable of that, that science came together and was able to put together a safe and effective vaccine in eight months, 12 months, whatever it was. I mean, is, is just, I mean, it's Nobel Peace Prize stuff. It's, it's, I mean, give them all the Nobel Prizes, chemistry, you know, literature. They can just, I mean, this is, it's such an achievement of human innovation, the human spirit and just, and and so like I mean the the moment the, the the first shot got into my arm I just felt such a sense of of relief. Me <laughs> of, too. Of catharsis. Me too. I mean, and then yeah. And then the uh, the the second one hit and mainly I just felt exhausted because it knocked me out <laughs> for the next twelve hours. Just Pfizer just wrecked me. I, I mean th there ain't that I was mean, me. Did, that was me on Saturday. I just got my last my second one on Saturday and I was like. I, I just felt like, and I got it. And then it kind of hits you like while you're sleeping or for me, it did. Cause it's like a delayed effect. Yeah. So I woke up on, on Sunday and I was like, I cannot pull myself out of bed. I felt like my whole body was like tingling warm and I just sort of like ached, but nothing else was wrong. Like no other bad symptoms. Yeah. And I'm kind of a hypochondriac. So that was good. But it was one of those things where you're just like, I'm literally not sick. I'm just going to feel like this way for a day. And then it was fine. It, it totally passed. It was worth it. But 
you know, you, my sister didn't have any side effects and I was like, dang it, oh. she's officially superior. And I thought I was going to get away with no side effects somehow. But did you get I Pfizer or Moderna? Pfizer. Pfizer. Yeah. See, same same thing you. for me. I, yeah. It, it knocked me out. I mean, even even now, like, you know, I, I had about a week ago and, you know, knocked me out. I'm still chasing that Pfizer sleep. I have never slept deeper and better in my life. Just, it, you know, now uh, that you say that, I actually do feel like my sleep got a lot better at all the days after getting that shot. So you might be on to something. It there. probably like resets your circadian rhythms or something. <laughs> but I mean, uh, uh, but yeah, literally. So good. H- happy you're vaccinated. Happy I'm vaccinated. And happy that the the music industry, live music, slowly coming back, slowly healing great news all around and speaking of great news we got michael elsner coming up right after the break don't go anywhere keep checking out break the business ryan Corella here i hope you're enjoying the show and i hope that you're getting a lot out of it i do what i do because i care about creators like you a lot i've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals entrepreneurs and organizations move forward i do it by hosting this program and i'm also proud to do it in my legal practice If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm, RKPA, does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. So excited for our guest coming up right now. He is the creator of Master Music Licensing, a sync licensing educational platform for indie creators. Find out more by visiting mastermusiclicensing.com. Happy to be speaking with Michael Elsner. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. Hello, Katie. How are you guys doing? We are doing so, so well. This is, this is, but before you came on, we were talking about how sync licensing and just music licensing. It's the ultimate topic that every musician, all my clients talk to me about. They want to learn more about it. They are thrilled at the prospect of not only getting to be on their favorite movie or TV show or in a commercial or a video game or something like that, but they're thrilled at the prospect of potential passive income, of that coveted yep. mailbox money. And so folks like you who are experts in this field and are sharing that expertise with the creative community, we're always happy to talk with you. And we have a ton of questions. We really do. But awesome. first, before we get into these questions, we have a we have a little tradition around here. Anytime we've ever had a guest that's ever been on a game show, 
We <laughs> need to know more about this. I, I guessed on a few months ago who was on Let's Make a Deal, had great Wayne Brady stories for us. We have to. And so anytime we can uh, mine this particular uh, gold, we go for it. You were on The Price is Right. My all-time favorite game show. Uh, my sister Lauren, who produces the show, she loves The Price is Right, too. Who doesn't love The Price is Right? And apparently you had a, a wild story from your time on the show. We need to hear about this. Yeah, so uh, so I wasn't I wasn't a guest. I wasn't like a contestant. I was actually a prize. Uh, so, so I know, crazy, okay, right? So this, I, You're like, going to have to elaborate. I'm intrigued. <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a video on YouTube. So... I had uh, um, a friend of mine uh, an endorsement with a particular guitar company, and um, and they were you know giving away one of their guitars as a prize, and um, and so what happened was uh, uh, you know he he sent them a, a bunch of photos of a bunch of their endorsing artists who could come out and like play it you know when the curtain opens they come out and play the guitar right you're you're bidding on a new guitar you know and um, and so he called me I guess he sent in a bunch of photos and and um, bunch of the guys were all tattooed guys and stuff like that and and whatnot uh you know rock guitar players and and the people there they, they said you know they wanted a it's a wholesome family show so they wanted someone who wasn't all tatted up and so he called me and says do you want to be on the show and i was like heck yeah so uh so you were the so wholesome I, alternative apparently yeah <laughs> but what's funny is i the night before is a last minute thing and so the night before, I I put together this whole thing, and I envisioned in my head what was going to happen, which was a mistake. Uh, but I envisioned in my head like, okay, they're going to open up the curtain, and I'm going to play like a couple riffs, like rock riffs, and I'm going to go into like change a little setting on my pedal board, go to like a funky thing, and I put together this whole thing that I was going to create, play like in in, in a couple of seconds to like show off the guitar. Um, and so I got there, and when I got there, you know the 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 um in, in like the next day in the afternoon the um. Uh, the stage manager t tells me, okay, you're going to be walking out from the side of the stage. You're the first prize. You're going to walk out. So that completely screwed up my whole thing of having my gear in front of me. <laughs> and, uh, and they took my gear off and just put it, you know, like up where the sound booth was. So that was the first thing. So I had to think of something new to do. And because I was going to be walking out in front of the contestants right next to Drew Carey. And it totally screwed everything that I had uh, planned. But then on top of that, the guitar that they were giving away had been in storage for about six months at their storage facility was all out of whack. The strings were all rusty. So the guy who's with the company, he's sitting there adjusting it. And, you know, they shoot the show live, kind of like this. Like once it starts, it's on mistakes and everything, right? And to make a long story short, uh, I, I never had the guitar. I never had my my gear. They took it away. I didn't even know what, what, what stuff my settings, my stuff was set to. All I knew is that about, you know, a couple minutes before we, we played, uh, the show started, they gave me a guitar. It was massively out of tune. I started, you know, frantically trying to tune it up, had a floating tremolo on it. So guitar players know that's not the easiest thing to uh, get in tune quickly. And then they're, you know, wiring it up. Then they take it to do a final polish. They give it back. It's still out of tune. I still don't really know what I'm going to do. And there's a lady with the clipboard. They start doing the countdown. She pushes me out. I walked out on stage. Couldn't hear a thing I was playing terrified, <laughs> but I played, I played it up really well. And, uh, and it actually came out. Okay. But the whole time I was there, you don't understand, like, I didn't hear the guitar. All I heard was, like, talking from the, you know, from the announcer, whoa, 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 you know, <laughs> and then the audience clapping. And there's a guy behind the camera who's, like, directing me to turn around and look at this camera and play to this camera. And we do this whole little thing. And then I didn't even hear Drew 
announced me like like thanks you know michael elsner he announced my name three times kicking me off the stage because <laughs> i just couldn't hear him right so it's you have to, it's it's just it was like the most terrifying thing i'd ever done just <laughs> everything that could have possibly went wrong yes I mean, everything went wrong went wrong short of like that, that they literally yeah. I was going to say, it literally sounds like an anxiety dream. Like, I have anxiety dreams about being in, like, a musical theater show and not knowing my lines. That is the real-life example of that, but yeah. for a guitarist, I would die. <laughs> well, the funny is, I didn't tell anyone, because I walked off there for sure. I was convinced the guitar is out of tune. I, I, I just literally went by instinct. I don't remember what I played. And so I didn't tell anyone. And it aired, like, you know, two or three weeks later. So I didn't tell anyone. And... um. And uh, I knew what day it was airing. I think the only person I told was my mom, you know, and uh, and, and uh, the girl I was dating at the time. So we watched it that morning. And I was like, oh, it's actually okay. Well, I go back into my room where I left my phone and I was blown away. I had a slew of text messages from my musician friends, even a person, you know, I was, what was I like in my mid, I was probably like 38, 36, 37 at the time. So, you know, 20 years ago, people I had gone to high school with had even like, uh, uh, sent me like um, messages on like Facebook and stuff like that about it. I thought I couldn't believe how many people watched this show. I was so blown away by like noon, you know, all, all the messages I had had, how many people saw that. So yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. It's an institution. If you are, if you are too sick to work, it's, it's written in federal law. You have to watch prices, right? It is oh, the yeah. rule. Uh, I mean, I could, I can't imagine that have been any worse, Michael. Sh short of that giant wheel coming off its hinges and like yeah. squashing you flat in the middle of the taping, I don't know yeah. how that how that they couldn't have made that worse for you. Well, the good thing is backstage, the giant wheel was there, and I had a friend of mine take a photo of me with it. So All that's right. another cool thing. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you're going to be on Prices Right and you don't get a picture take, did you get to spin it once? No, no, because it was all locked. It was like no. you know, they, behind behind the stage, they have all the stuff. Like it's it's kind of chaotic back there. But yeah, I got a, I got a little quick photo with the wheel. It's it's pretty funny. Very no, I didn't nice. get to spin it. <laughs> well, I mean that that was such a great story, and I, and I I could talk about you, talk to you about prices right the whole time because it's my favorite game show. But we do have to talk about sync licensing. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Because you do have a lot of great insight to share, and this is a really important topic for indie creators. I want to start, Michael, by getting us all sort of on the same foundation with this. Can you tell us just what sync licensing is and what makes it such a big opportunity for indie creators specifically? Yeah, so sync is short for synchronization. And uh, and what we mean by that is with a synchronization or synchronization license or sync license, really, uh, we are granting permission to the owners of another form of intellectual property, which would be like a really a TV show or a film, we're granting them the rights to synchronize our uh, recording and our intellectual property, meaning the song. So there's really two actual contracts that go in there. There's the, the sync licensing and there's the master license. Both of them are really housed inside a folder called the sync license. But, um, but we're granting them permission to synchronize our song with moving picture or you know film or or, or TV show, uh, commercial, uh, uh, film or video game trailer, video games, etc. Anything that 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 synchronizes music with moving picture of any kind requires a sync license. Wow, and I, I've and, and so I, I've heard you say in the past that you know even though a lot of musicians obviously want to get these sync licenses because they can be 
potentially very lucrative and can be great exposure for a musician to get your your recording or your song on a popular TV show or a movie or something like that. I've heard you say in the past that one of the reasons why some musicians struggle to find these licensing opportunities is they tend to approach licensing the same way that they approach other things in the traditional music industry. I'm intrigued. What do you mean by this? Oh, that's, yeah, great question. I love that. So a lot of musicians, I live in Nashville now. I lived in L.A. for a long time. I'm originally from New York. So, hey, Katie. Uh, hey. But, um, <laughs> but uh, um a lot of musicians that I meet, and I've been doing this really since around 2005. So even though I'm kind of like newer on the on the online scene, teaching this in, in a broader space, I've been showing this process to my friends since the mid 2000s, since I got into it. Um, and and uh, the thing that I've learned, you know, I see over and over and over and over and over, is you know a musician will finish their song or their record. They really will finish a record. Uh, especially like living in Nashville now, you know, pre-COVID when I'd go out and, you know, meet different people and stuff like that and meet musicians. So what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing a lot of sync licensing and they don't really know who I am. And oh, that's amazing. What what shows are, uh, are, are your songs getting on? Well, you know, we just finished a record. So we're just blasting out our album to all these supervisors. And that's hmm. kind of what I mean by, by the music industry approach, which I look at as really being a two-step approach. The first step is to finish your song, like finish your album, whatever it is. Obviously, there's a whole bunch of steps involved in that, but really, we finish our song. I'm sorry, we finish the album. And then what we do is, is we just send it out, right? And, uh, and we send it out to radio stations and A&R people, uh, you know, publishers and music supervisors. And we expect them to listen to it and figure out whether or not they like it or not and what to do with it. That's That really is the traditional music industry approach. Two steps, really. And our end users are really just going to listen to the song and they're going to determine whether or not they like it, right? And either they like it, they buy the record, or they continue listening to it in their car. Well, licensing, when we're licensing our music, we're working, we're no longer working in, in the music industry. Our end users are have nothing to do with the music industry. We're working in the TV industry and in the film industry. I really I tell people all the time that I don't work in the music industry anymore. I work in the TV and the film industry, mm. video game industry, film trailer industry, et cetera. And, and our end users absorb music in an entirely different way. And their jobs re re revolve around finding music that fits a scene. Now, we also have to keep in mind that those people are not just arbitrarily deciding on a song. These supervisors or editors, they're working with producers and directors, uh, production companies who months before when they were filming the scene or, or you know, when they were they're putting everything together, they had already a very clear idea what they were looking for musically in the scene. We also have to keep in mind that music comes in at the very, very, very end of post-production when everything's being edited together. So, so at that point, what's happening is a supervisor or an, a music editor, whoever uh, that end user would be, depending on the situation, they're really following um, kind of a guideline uh, that was given to them by the director and the producer. We want a song in the style of John Mayer, but we want it to be a female vocalist. All right, so... We have to find a song in the style of John Mayer, but a female vocalist, or we want an upbeat rock track and stuff like that. So they're going to type in very specific keywords. They're going to, you know, search out of hundreds of thousands of songs to funnel it down to, you know, 10 or 12 songs. Then they're going to quickly pull them in and spot check it and see which song kind of feels best under that scene. Once they've chosen that, then what's going to happen is an editor or a music editor is then going to take that song and, you know, the various versions of it meaning like say like an instrumental and a vocal version and they're gonna then uh you know set it into 
that scene, position it exactly how it needs to be, even cut it up if they need to do a quick arc of the song in like a you know 45 second you know um, period. Then of course they're going to cut it up and really you know create their own edit of the song, and also edit the scene to really match certain hits of, of the song as well. And then it gets passed on to a re-recording mixer, who's the final cog in the wheel. And that person's job is to take all the dialogue, all the sound design, all the music, and edit it together into what we end up watching as the show or the movie and stuff like that. So those end users, uh, they absorb our music in an entirely different way. So they need it delivered to them in an entirely different way so that their job is as easy as possible. It's as easy as possible for them to find the relevant song based on their search. It's as easy as possible for them to, to pull it in and audition uh, that or the various versions and stems of it so they can really you know work with it uh, within the scene. And then also clear the license and clear the sync license and the master use license from the owners of, of that song. So that's an entirely different process than just sending your music out, sending out a CD and hoping that someone figures out what to do with them. A lot of musicians do that first process. They send it out and then they go, man, sync licensing sucks. Uh, I sent out my music to all these people and I never heard anything. Well, of course you didn't because you delivered it to them in a way that they cannot use it. You know, So it really starts with understanding that when we're licensing our music, we're no longer working in the music industry. So we have to approach it with a different process. I appreciate that perspective. Uh, a close friend of mine is a really accomplished music supervisor. And she says that when musicians come to her for advice, she has four words for them. Make my job easy. Yep. And everything that you brought up there, Michael, fits in with that, right? Making the song, making the track searchable, uh, making it, you know, showing me how, how this could be used in a particular work. What artists do, does, does this track sound like having it in databases that are easy to access. And, uh, as an important step from the legal side, making sure that there is clean title, that the rights are easy to manage so that when it comes time to set the license up, you're not going to create a hundred steps for their business affairs department, but that song is ready to license and ready to go make their job easy. Right. And licensing is not difficult, but I, you might appreciate this too. You know, the, the business of, of sync licensing, it's a, it's a contract-based business, right? That's the first thing about it. It's all, it's all about intellectual property. Of course, we want to make their job as easy as possible on, on, you know, for them to find it and, and, and utilize it. But to actually secure the license, it's a contract-based business. It's the exact, exact, exact same business model as real estate. It's the exact same business model. The oh, only difference okay. I got to hear some elaboration here. This yeah, the only difference the only difference is that if I sell my house, right? I've 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 sold it to you. Uh we 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 agree, we negotiate terms, right? Uh of course we have to make sure that you have clear title that when you buy it, you know, uh 2 years from now someone's not going to come after you saying that they own it, right? So there's that clear title aspect of it. But when I sell you my property, uh, all the specifics regarding it are going to be in the contract. So, for example, if your question is like, well, it's right next to a pond. Can, do I own that pond? Well, I don't know. We have to look at the actual you know, lines that, that tell us what the property is, right? So, so those are the specifics regarding that particular contract. When I sell you this house, it's going to say you also get the pond next door and, and all that stuff. It's the same thing with licensing. Every single detail is very clearly stated in the contract. The only difference is that when I sell you my house, after it's sold, I can't come back into it. If I come back into it, I'd be an intruder. You could really legally shoot me and, you know, call the cops and have me arrested, right? You could do that. 
because I don't own it anymore. With licensing, the difference is, is it's kind of like renting. I'm really giving you permission to use this song for a specific purpose that's, of course, going to be stated in the contract based on a, an on, on a, on a, um, a amount that we've negotiated. Uh, and that's it. And then you can use that song for your show. And then I can take that song and I can still then offer it to someone else and they can use it on their show or their film and I can keep offering it. The only difference is in the exchange of, of this business transaction, I never lose the rights to my song, but in real estate, I do lose the rights to my house. Yeah. That's like, I'm going to keep that. I'm going to use that. That's a great metaphor. Um, let's, let's turn now to your, your platform, the master music licensing. You talk about a four step plan to sync licensing success. I'm all for anything that can be done in a few number of steps yeah. in the music business. So that's awesome. What is step one of the four step plan? H how does this whole process start for a creator? Yeah. So my perspective of it and the way that I've, I've approached licensing from the beginning was always from the standpoint of a writer, uh, composer. Uh, and so Throughout my career, at different times, I chased after things like, oh, they want this, so I'm just going to you know, keep writing music like this. And I realized two things with that approach. One, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, and two, it was really never authentic. So when I decided to stop doing that and I went back to, I'm just going to write the music that I want to write, the opportunities started presenting themselves again. So the first step of my process is what I just call build your catalog, because uh, I couldn't think of a better term for it. But what I mean by that is to write the music that you want to write, write the music that's authentic to you, and stop worrying about all the, the music industry rules of songwriting. Because the reality is that every single section of a song can find a home. You could have a verse, find a placement in a particular show, you could find you could have a bridge, find another placement in another particular show. So basically every part of your song is valuable. You know, there's a line that songwriters have, which is, you know, like, don't bore us, get to the chorus. You hear that a lot with with with, uh, you know, songwriting classes and whatnot. And I hate that line because to me, that says that nothing else is valuable but the chorus. You know, don't bore me, just get to the chorus. Well, the intro is, of a song with licensing has the potential to be used in a trailer and make you ten thousand dollars. Right. The bridge has the potential to be in a very you know, poignant moment in a scene and make you, you know, thousands of dollars, not only in the upfront fee, but in the back end royalties. So the first step of my process is to always be writing, always be adding to your catalog. So that's it. Write without boundaries. Write the music you're passionate about. If you want to come into your studio and write heavy metal rock, there will be an outlet for it. There are TV shows where they're building cars and 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 motorcycles, and they use heavy metal. But if you want to do acoustic, you know, singer songwriter stuff, there are great montages in shows like Grey's Anatomy that use that kind of stuff, and pretty much everything in between. When you start listening to TV, you hear such a wide swath of music across so many genres that you would never hear on the radio. It just goes to show that there's so many opportunities for placements, everything from acapella to like cinematic, you know, heavy orchestral stuff and literally everything in between. So write the music that you're passionate about. The second step of the process is now when, when we start serving our end users. Let me say one more thing about that first step of the process. When we it. write music that's authentic to us, that authenticity comes across even more when it's married to picture and it's helping tell the story that's already taking place on screen. So I'm a fan of writing music that's authentic to you and not chasing after what you think other people, you know, are, are asking you to do, unless they're specifically asking you to do it, of course. But <laughs> I'm more I'm more into the mindset of attracting the opportunities than chasing the opportunities. Uh, step two of the process is where we start serving our end users. Um, I call it creating valuable content. 
And what I mean by that is kind of what I was telling you earlier about like, like editors and re-recording mixers. Uh, you know, imagine a scene, and you see this all the time when you really start listening to the TV, to the music that you hear on TV. You'll watch a scene, two, two uh, characters are talking, and there's just instrumental music behind them. And then suddenly when they're done talking a, a specific moment, it suddenly crossfades into the full mix of that same song. It almost sounds like an instrumental track that just suddenly had a chorus pop in. Well, the reason why that that worked like that was because the editor had an instrumental version and a full mix. They had all the stems, right? yeah. Well, and the stems come into play. Yes, stems are very important too because they can create their own levels between the instruments. But stems, we can take it even a step further because we mix music in stereo. Most TV shows and films are, are mixed in surround sound, 5.1, 7.1. So re-recording mixers, the person all the way at the end of that chain, they like to be able to take music and throw it into that surround field as well. And so that's really where the stem mixes come in very handy. Uh, a lot of a lot of re-recording mixers want stems. So that's what I call creating the valuable content. Again, this is something you never do in the, in the traditional music industry. You send out your full mix and you call it a day. But the, the step two of the process where you can create, send out the valuable content, this makes the life and the job of an editor and a, and a, a re-recording mixer 10,000 times easier. Then we go into the third step of the process. Now, now that second step of the process, by the way, that that's that's the process that we do whenever we're in our mix down phase, whenever we're mixing our song, right? So once you've burned your full mix, it's very simple just to create an instrumental mix and create a stripped down mix or an acoustic mix and then burn out your stems. You do it right then. It takes an extra you know, half hour. So that's no big deal, but a lot of people just don't do it. Can I ask you a question about you that actually? Because I feel like, that's assuming that the artist also has to be the producer. What if an artist is either not recording their album, and but they have a great song that they feel like would be good for sync? Yeah. So they're not necessarily working with a producer, and they're not a producer. Is there a way to still do this? And like, how good of quality does your product have to be in order to pitch it? Well, you're pro well. First off, you know when you're getting your songs on TV and and films, you're you're in you're 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 in a multi-billion-dollar industry. So the product has to be good. Uh, and, and, and it's a hard question to answer because the term is broadcast quality and that's yeah. kind of an ambiguous term. So we'll just say it has to be good because it has to be at the standpoint to where it can be played on, on a popular TV show and seen by millions of people. It's, it can't be a demo with an old Casio keyboard and a really bad yeah. drum machine. And so there's vocals. like no pitching the demo. Like you are pitching the final product that sounds right. ready to go. Yeah, and, and nowadays with technology, it's not hard. Now, to, to answer your question about being the producer, not being the producer, if you're not the producer, which is fine, you know, you don't have to be the producer. Uh, as long as you understand what your end users need, you can ask that of your producer and your engineer. Plus, how many times have artists sat with their engineer when they're mixing a song? You know, artists generally should be there through that process. Uh, and especially the ones who are really taking their career seriously, I think would want to be involved in the, mix process and and have a say hey can we turn up that guitar there right um so as long as the artist knows what they need you know they're always going to tell their 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 producer or their mix engineer obviously i need a full mix but they can also say hey can you also give me an instrumental mix hey can you also give me the stems of the drums the guitars the bass the keyboards and the vocals uh so that's a very easy request to ask uh regardless of, of if you're doing the production or not oh. yeah so, and that's, and here's the other thing too. The thing with step two of the process, let's say you're able to, generally speaking, you can create like four or five 
six uh, alternate mixes. You know, you can have a full mix, an instrumental mix. If you're doing instrumental music, you can do a no melody mix, same thing as an instrumental. Uh, you can do a stripped down mix. Maybe you take off like the electric guitars and the big keyboard. So it's just, you know, vocals, uh, acoustic guitar, drums and bass, something like that. And then you can do an acoustic mix, just vocals and the acoustic instrument, piano, bass, whatever. You can do a non, no orchestra mix. You have a really cool drum and bass group. You can just do a drum and bass mix. But let's say just for simple math, you, you do five, an average of five alternate mixes, and you have a 10 album, a 10 song album. You now have 50 licensable tracks. So you went from a 10 song record up to 50 licensable tracks. And this just exponentially really increases your, your potential for placements. Now, if you can't go to your back catalog and create any alternate mixes and you only have 10 mixes, only have the full mixes off, the, off that record, then it doesn't mean you can't license your songs. It just means that you've now limited yourself. You can't get all the other potential placements, like say like, oh, we like this track, but we just need the instrumental of it. Well, if you can't deliver the instrumental of it, then that's not a placement you're going to get. It doesn't mean that you can't get a placement of that vocal down the road. You just won't get all the other potential placements that, and, you know, that are possible for you. And my whole focus uh, making a career out of this is to create, is to always be generating consistent placements. Uh, and so, of course, by doing that, I want to deliver as many options to my end users as possible so I can always get that consistency going. I I can dig that a lot. That's so exciting to me. I, 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 I can tell you in the last few years, Michael, I've really just been in awe of the potential of sync licensing as sort of a an equalizer for indie creators. I would say of all the of the many different ways that indie artists can uh move their careers forward, can gain exposure. You know, this, the world of sync seems to be more accommodating to indie creators than perhaps other licensing opportunities, and I'm such a fan of it. Uh, you can find out more about our guest's work by visiting mastermusiclicensing.com. Uh, check out the four steps uh, to sync licensing success on this platform and a lot of other great educational materials that he has there. Michael, I want to uh, send you out with this last question that I'm really excited to get your insight on because you're going to bring so much expertise to bear on it. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? So, yeah, I do, actually. Uh, I, I, I will tell you that as a, as, as a young, struggling musician who you know was going after the record deal uh, and I moved from New York to Nashville in the late nineties, Nashville to Los Angeles in the mid two thousands, uh, you know, pursuing that hard. Um, I, I will tell you the, the thing that really changed everything for me was when I started working for very successful producers and composers as a guitar player playing on their projects. Um, I learned that all of them had a very thorough knowledge and understanding of publishing and the overall business. And at that time, I didn't because I didn't go to music school and I, I just wanted to play guitar and play in a rock band. Um, but when I decided that I was going to really make a concerted effort to learn the business like these individuals did, I was so impressed by their knowledge. That's when the entire game changed for me. And so I think the most important thing that I could tell anyone wherever you're at is to thoroughly understand publishing and maybe not even publishing in in its most base in in its most uh, like the like the basic sense of publishing but i would even take it a step further to just understanding your rights as a as a songwriter and what i mean by that is is when you write a song you're creating a piece of intellectual property and that intellectual property can become a business 
asset for you if you allow it to. Actually, it will be one if you really allow it to be one for you. But then when you look at that asset or that song as, as something that can generate money for you and you understand how copyrights work and how publishing works, and, and again, I'm just going to assume that you understand that this has to be at a, at a certain quality sonically, then you can start looking for all the potential outlets uh, to get your song out. The last thing I would say about that is musicians tend to be very selfish. We tend to look at the me, me, me. Hey, look at my song. Hey, you know, here's the thing that I've also learned. When we can serve other people, we're this is a service industry. So if we're putting our music out there in the case of licensing, every single song that I write, I look at it as a service to my end users, the music supervisors, the music editors, the re-recording mixers, ultimately the production companies that are going to be licensing it from me. I want to serve them and I want to make their job and their life as easy as possible in every aspect. And by understanding the business, it just makes their life even easier. So when you're able to do that, you start getting repeat clients who like working with you so much that they're going to keep coming back and they're going to keep licensing music to you because you make their job easy and you're giving them high quality content. It gets back to what we said about how to win the hearts of music supervisors, right? Make the job easier. And, you know, it works in sync, but it works in many other sectors of the, of the entertainment business as well. Again, you can find out more about our guest's work by visiting mastermusiclicensing.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining us this week. This was an absolute treat. Don't be a stranger. Thanks. We'd love to have you on again soon. I, I would love to join you again soon. Fabulous. Oh, my goodness. I love talking about sync. It just puts me in such a good mood. I, I just I love its potential for in, empowering indie creators. And yeah, I'm, I'm grinning ear to ear over there, over here. <laughs> Yeah, I got to tell you, one of my biggest regrets is not getting the instrumentals of my first EP when I recorded it. <laughs> not that I'd be like pitching to sync necessarily, but like even a couple of years later, I was like, dang it. I, I really, I didn't know enough. Like I didn't know enough at the time as an artist. And now it's great that people like Michael can come on here and so openly share information that so many artists are going to be able to put to good use. Yeah, love it. Uh, I love talking to the sync licensing experts. And speaking of getting to talk to experts, Katie, uh, I want to direct some of the folks who are checking out this program now to the expertise that you have to offer. Can you, uh, before we close for this week, tell the folks watching and listening about where they can find all the stuff that you're up to, your podcasts, your coaching, everything. Yeah. So pretty much everything is at Katie Zaccardi, hanging out on Instagram the most at Katie Zaccardi. Also on katiezacardi.com is where you will find links to all of my offers, all my social media, uh, and the podcast, which is the Out to Be podcast. And you can listen to that Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and want to pay me more money to do it eventually. <laughs> <laughs> and you also you're also a co-host on the the Daily Music Business podcast. Yes. So the Daily Music Business podcast is a daily podcast that has different like hosts every day of the week. And so I host once a week and usually the episode drops on Thursday or Friday. So you can go subscribe there. And there's a bunch of other great co-hosts as well, putting out awesome content every day. Fantastic. Of the week. Not the weekends. <laughs> we need a break. <laughs> Almost daily. Uh, daily on the Almost. days that matter. Katie, yes. <laughs> Katie, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate getting to hang out with you. Um, and, uh, you know, don't don't be a stranger yourself. Love to have you come by anytime, especially when you get that hypnotherapist's license. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna have yes. a blast with that. That's gonna be crazy. 
<laughs> yes, I will be back. We will hypnotize Ryan on air. Awesome. <laughs> Although I'm sure I'll be back before then too. This is always a good time being on the Break the Business podcast. Oh, fantastic. And it's a great time hanging out with all of you watching and listening as well. Thanks for checking out Break the Business. We'll see you next week. Thank you.